Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my longitudinal friend, my intensive longitudinal friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about that sweet spot between panel designs and time series designs, intensive longitudinal data, the logistical and analytical challenges, but more importantly, the tremendous potential. Along the way, we also mention campfire face plants, fear of horses, your spare eyelid, polishing your Nobel Prize, ripples in a pond, Lickem Sir, August 14th, the basketball effect, Southwest boarding number B14, high school math teacher apologies, open mic night, and umbrella shopping. We hope you enjoy today's episode. So I think you share this with me, but you and I are both incredibly fortunate that our teens, for some inexplicable reason, seem to like hanging out with us. Yeah, there are phases, but I'd say on average, yes. The other night, we were having dinner out on the back deck. Wait, is this the night where you had your accident? (laughs) (laughs) I used air quotes. I really appreciate you not raising this in a public forum where I would... (laughs) Have to be deeply embarrassed. You can cut it, but I'm putting it right back in. (laughs) Yeah, we've established that (laughs) on prior episodes. Yes, my quote accident. So very briefly, from my back in the backyard, I texted Greg that I just fell into my campfire. (laughs) Now... This is not figurative. I did not figuratively fall into the campfire. I'm laughing, which makes me a horrible person. You are. Folks, obviously you can't see Greg, but he's kind of losing it now. I've not seen him this happy in quite some time. I didn't get burned at all. I got scraped up pretty good. And I kid you not, I'm lying on my back looking up at the stars. And my very first thought is, Greg's going to find this really funny. I was so touched. What I pictured based on your description was in Raiders of the Lost Ark, the guy's face melts toward the end of the movie. I pictured you like that texting me. I was like, oh, oh, this hurts so bad. Greg's going to find this really funny. And I did. And you did. Anyway, we're sitting around the table, and the kids have a shared friend group. They were in class, and their friends started texting one another phrases that my kids would use in regular language. And they're these old-timey ones that somehow they get from me. Mm. And the point of the story at the dinner table was they were thanking me for making them talk like some somebody who was born in 1850. <laughs> I go immediately to defensive mode. Uh-huh. I'm like, that is totally untrue. I don't do that at all. And they started rattling off. Yeah, you're a dollar short and a day late. <laughs> Uh-oh, Katie, bar the door. What am I going to do? I got to see a man about a horse. Are we going to come tomorrow? Well, God willing and the crick don't rise. <laughs> it went on and on. Oh And then one of my favorite that I didn't even know I used, they would come out and say, yeah, I haven't studied for the test tomorrow. And I'd say, well, at least you'll die standing up. Were you raised in the Depression? Where did you get these? We have established that I would have made an ideal cowboy, except for one minor thing, and that is I am terrified of horses. Really? I think any horse ever born either belongs in dog food or Elmer's glue. (laughs) Horses terrify me. Other than that, Uh I would have made an awesome cowboy. But no, I can't even explain where it came from. And some I can pin on my mom. Uh So one that they raised was, well, be careful what you pray for, because God might just give it to you. Mm -hmm. That one I can pin on mom. Okay. The Bob's your uncle. (laughs) That falls under, do you want a little chin music? Well, the last one that you said I like a lot, actually. The gist of it is be careful what you wish for. And I have to say, to be honest, that's a phrase that I utter a whole lot. When someone has just successfully defended their dissertation proposal, I will generally say some version of, well, we've got good news and bad news. The good news is that you passed and the bad news is that you have to do it. I think they appreciate that phrase more and more as they get deeper into their dissertation. We all experience that as a number of years ago, Bauer and I were really 
fortunate and we got a multi-million dollar grant from NIH Mm -hmm. and we went out to celebrate. We each got a beer and sat across from each other and were just (laughs) shell-shocked. Because the correlate of be careful for what you wish for is what were we thinking? Right. (laughs) It wasn't like trying to be funny. I mean, we were sitting there and we were like, holy crap. Remind me why we wanted this grant, because now you got to go do it. Yeah. So what got me thinking about all of this? Besides the fact I fell into a campfire. And again, I want to thank you as a friend for holding that in the confidence that I shared it with you. Sure. And I think your left eyelid is going to grow back. So that's why God gave me two. (laughs) We had a family vacation. It was my family, my brother's family. My mom was there. My kid was four years old, running through the house, stubs their toe, and runs to my mom crying (laughs) And my mom brushes the hair out of their eyes and says, well, sweetie, that's why God made shoes. (laughs) And from the kitchen, my brother yells, that is where we came from. That's why Patrick and I are the way we are right there. So, yep, that's why God made two eyelids. So you have a spare. So thank you for that. Yes. Yeah, you're welcome. Bauer and I had a chance to do a series of talks recently for the American Psychological Association. Mm -hmm. It was on intensive longitudinal data, and it was a lot of fun. J.P. Lawrenceau also gave a presentation as part of the series. Mm -hmm. If folks are interested, we have on our centerstat.org webpage, there's a tab called Resources, and we have all the downloads, we have links to the videos and whatnot, but we gave three 75-minute lectures on intensive of longitudinal data, one of the early slide headings I have is be careful for what you ask. ILD, which is the intensive longitudinal data, ILD is one of those things where people say, you have to gather intensive data, you have to do diary data, you have to do ecological momentary assessments, you have to, you have to, you have to. Mm -hmm. And so you do this boatload of work, and then you get it and go back to the person and you say, okay, well, what do I do with it now? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, yeah, (laughs) that's really complicated. I'm not sure. And it's one of those, okay, you fed it. Now you own it. Yeah. What do you do when you put in blood, sweat, and tears and get this intensive data of day-to-day, hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute, and then, by gosh, you got to do something with it. So let's do a little bit of clarifying to start. When people say they're going to do a longitudinal study, that actually means different things to different people. Can we at least try to differentiate among panel data or time series data or intensity? longitude. All of these seem to have some blurred lines here. So can we start trying to untangle that? I feel like we can think about three different clusters of design. One is what you referred to as the panel design. Mm -hmm. And this is old school, man. This goes back, 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 back. What this is, is what a lot of us think about when we think about longitudinal data. That is, you have a large sample of individuals, and they are all assessed at the same time at maybe a one-year increment Mm -hmm. or a two-year increment. You get a sample of kids that range between 10 and 15 years of age at time one, and you assess them once a year for three years. Mm -hmm. We can think about it in the genesis of the term panels of data. We get the first wave or the first panel, the second, the third. That's kind of bread and butter for a lot of areas of research. And I wonder if it's bread and butter because it's easy to get access to those data. I don't really mean easy, but it might be easier for people in education. It might be relatively easy to go gather data from kids every fall or every spring, or it might be the case that a school naturally gathers data at those particular times. So one of the things I kind of worry about with panel designs is why people choose the spacings that they do and whether or not it actually makes sense. Because I think sometimes people just do it out of convenience. Why do you rob banks and it's <laughs> that's where they keep the money? <laughs> Why do you assess annually in schools? That's where I can access the kids and they have the internal documentation that I can draw, whatever that might be. 
I think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is those designs are highly amenable to particular kinds of research questions. So if you are interested in factors that are related with end-of-grade tests Mm -hmm. throughout elementary and middle school, well, an end-of-grade test occurs at the end of grade three and four and five, and so there's a nice natural kind of element to that. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at developmental trajectories of substance use from onset into regular use in adolescence, maybe taking assessments every six months or every 12 months may be amenable to that. (laughs) But part of it is a lot of us become unstuck in time and forget that we didn't always have an iPhone 10 in our pocket. (laughs) Not hyperbolically, (laughs) an iPhone has more computational power than the guidance system of the space shuttle. Right. (laughs) And all of us have some version of that within reach. And so we didn't have the technology to do these kind of daily assessments or things like that. I mean, people did this, don't get us wrong. Niall Bolger and Jean-Philippe Laurenceau have a wonderful textbook on this, and they talk about Mm -hmm. some of the history of these. It's not like we discovered intensive longitudinal data this past year. I mean, people have been doing this, but technology is another rate-limiting step. You can't randomly ping people throughout the day in 1983. This is starting to get at one of the questions that I ask people who say they want to do longitudinal designs that they have maybe the hardest time answering, and that is about the timing of this change process that they're trying to study. You know, So if, if I have someone who says, we're going to gather data from people every fall, I always ask them, why? How does that align with the change process? How do you know that you're in the sweet spot, that there has been enough time for the change that you want to study to occur, but not too much time? It's a question that people have a really hard time answering. Now we have this kind of technology that you're describing that allows us maybe to be a bit more flexible at finding the sweet spot. But just because we gather a whole lot more data doesn't necessarily make that easier. Let's swing the pendulum all the way to the other end. So a panel design, I'm going to make up numbers. You have a sample of 300 kids that you assess once a year for three years. Now we're going to swing it all the way to the other side to what might be called traditional time series data, where panel data has a very large sample of individuals assessed on a small number of repeated assessments. Time series is exactly the opposite. What a classic time series is may be one unit of observation observation that is followed 300 times. Well, you might ask yourself, when on earth would you ever do that? Well, imagine you were studying the closing price of the S&P 500 index every day for a year. Mm -hmm. However many business days there are in that 300 and some, let's just say 300. What you're primarily interested in is looking at forecasting. If we can try to understand these day-to-day-to-day fluctuations and Ben Bernanke is rattling his sword about (laughs) a jumbo increase in the interest rate, what is that going to impact the S&P tomorrow or the day after or the day after? And then we've all concluded that everyone listening made a massive vocational error by not going into econ and marketing Mm -hmm. because (laughs) what you do is then move your money around Mm -hmm. based on other information because you're forecasting some future state. And then we give him the Nobel Prize for economics. He got a freaking Nobel (laughs) Prize. Yes, he did. He's awesome. (laughs) What comes in here is thinking about an ideographic versus a nomothetic orientation to research. We've talked about this before. I know, right? Ideographic and nomothetic. You've got your word-a-day calendar again. Of course, I never remember the definitions, so I have my mnemonics. Ideographic is idiot. It's one. You have one idiot. That's ideographic. <laughs> and nomothetic is no mo. I don't want any more sample, right? Nomothetic. What nomothetic is, is studying general laws. Ideographic is studying specific facts. All right, well, if we have a time series that's focused on a single observation, we're highly limited mm-hmm. in generalizing to other individuals that are similar to that one under study. Mm-hmm. We literally have a sample size of one. 
Now we have 300 observations, but we have very little basis for generalizing back to a population. But swing the pendulum back to the panel, and we have three or 400 subjects, so we have a much stronger ability to make generalizations back to the population, but we only have three repeated measures or four repeated measures. We may have done a horrible job in assessing how these constructs unfold over time. Going back to my kids' list is, you got to pick the hill you're going to die on. (laughs) So those are the bookends. Now, in comes, why can't we all just get along? And let's take a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. Why the enemies? Why can't we all just get along? And we get intensive longitudinal data. And what that is, we have what we might think is a representative sample of individuals upon which we can draw generalized conclusions about the population. Mm -hmm. What is that number? I have no idea. Maybe 50 people, maybe 80 people, maybe 100 people. Not as much as a panel, but vastly bigger than a time series. Mm -hmm. But instead of having 300 repeated measures or three repeated measures, maybe we have 15 or 20 or 40. Maybe we have 40 repeated measures on 80 individuals. Mm -hmm. That starts moving us into that interstitial region of intensive longitudinal data. When I think about this with regard to generalizability on the time series side, I usually think of it as that is the population that they want to study, right? If it was something to do with the gross national product of a particular country, then I assume you want to make inferences about that particular country. And so if there's any generalizability to be going on, It might be about what you could expect at other time points in the future. So this, we're trying to get generalizability across individuals as best we can. And we're getting a lot of benefit by having many, many measures because we're going to have a lot more sensitivity to study the process that's of interest. So I like this very much. But again, be careful what you wish for. As you're listening, think about what's near and dear to you in terms of theoretical questions, whatever that might be in whatever area you're studying. And think about causal influences, right? We're going to take a shot of whiskey and slam it on the saloon bar, and we're going to say, my goal is to infer cause, even from observational data. Mm -hmm. All right, so all of us want to do that. Don't be a wiener and say, we're looking at associations. No. We're looking at predictability. Just own it. Take the shot of whiskey (laughs) and say that I am inferring cause about what I'm studying. Think about what Greg talked about in terms of that time lag. So when I came up through the system, there was a lot of interest in the relation between negative affect and substance use. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's called a self-medication model that the reason people drink is to self-medicate with alcohol of negative feelings and trying to make those go away. Mm -hmm. When I was on a research project, we looked at negative affect when a person was 15 years old predicting alcohol use when they were 16 years old. Now, is that what the theory is predicting? Because when you peel back a couple of layers on the onion, what the theory is really saying is if you experience negative affect during the day, Mm -hmm. are you more likely to drink that night? Right. And if you have had a drinking episode that night, are you more likely to experience negative affectivity the following day? We don't like disjoints between theoretical models and statistical models because that is an abject threat to internal validity, right? Internal validity is the extent to which you're making an accurate causal attribution about what you're studying. Mm -hmm. And if you look at, do you feel depressed and anxious at age 15? And how much did you drink at age 16? That is not testing the theory as the theory lives. I don't know if people actively think about it or they just say, well, there's time. When I think about that particular model that has negative affect and then some version of substance use, in my head, I picture this panel model with all kinds of little 
back and forth. It's like this accordion that if you pulled it, you would see whether it's hourly or daily, all of this potential back and forth with all these little boxes that you never see. But what happens when someone does that study that goes from year one to year two, you've sort of collapsed all of those boxes and it's just really not clear to me what you get out the other side. If you had some kind of stasis in a process, what happened from one day to the next, then maybe you're going to get something that's informative when you look at negative affect in year one and substance use at year two. But when there are more interesting processes that are going on more locally with regard to time, I just don't even know what the heck you get out when you look at things at these broad, broad time points. So the potential here is just tremendous, and it seems to be much more on point to the change process that you actually care about. That's how I really like thinking about it is how can we gather and evaluate data in a way that is optimally consistent with what our theories predict? There might be one-year lags. Yeah. Imagine that Ben Bernanke is home polishing his Nobel (laughs) medal. So if we institute an increase in the prime interest rate today, what is the inflation rate going to be in six months? Right. Now, the very same question could be asked, if the Fed implements an increase in the prime interest rate today, what is the stock market going to be tomorrow? Yeah. But it goes back to it all depends on the question. There's actually a statistical term that corresponds to it, and then a colloquial one that I think about. It's decay. Mm -hmm. Does an effect decay? And you can think about it in different ways. Is dropping a rock into a quiet pool, and those waves go out. But if you wait long enough, the force of the waves spend themselves out, and it returns to a quiet pool. Mm -hmm. If you think those waves are related to other waves, but you wait until they are all gone, and then on the other side of the pool, you drop another rock in and say, oh, see, there's no relationship relation between my first rock and the second rock. And it's like, dude, there was a fundamental one. You just waited so long that the proximal effects decayed away. It is not uninteresting to look at, on average, do people who experience higher levels of negative affect Mm -hmm. tend to, on average, drink more alcohol, Mm -hmm. right? That's a between-person effect. We don't want to give that up. What we also want to know is, if you're more anxious than you usually are, do you tend to drink more than you usually do? The classic example is, this afternoon, you have an anxiety reading of eight on the scale we're using, and I have an anxiety reading of 11. Mm -hmm. My anxiety is higher than yours is. But if my mean anxiety is 14, I'm actually less anxious than I usually am. You're having a good day. So what the intensive longitudinal data allows us to do is to simultaneously look at both of these issues. So we can look at these within-person processes, but we also at least have the ability to look at the overall level of negative affectivity, the overall level of alcohol use, and see how those relate at all. But in cues the country song. You're going to get this rectangular data matrix that is a country mile long, <laughs> and you got to do something with it. So this reminds me of what you did a number of years ago with your latent curve models with structured residuals. The idea of the structured residuals helping us to try to separate out those things that are within processes from things that are between processes. And to me, when you die, I will say nice things about that work. In fact, I have it on my calendar. On your calendar, you have one, I'm going to die. I would be kind of interested in that. You might ask your family to keep August 14th clear. (laughs) I like that you bring up the SR model. If for no other reason, then we can't use that with intensive longitudinal data. Mm -hmm. So let's think briefly about, okay, you putting your blood, sweat, and tears, and you've got this country mile long data file. Maybe we have 80 people that range from 30 to 60 repeated observations. You got a boatload of data now that we got to deal with. Mm -hmm. First, 
90% of science is data management. That is a tough go, right? I have greater fears of making a mistake in data management than I do about fitting any model because that's the greatest area where you can screw things up is in data management. The model is like the easy part. Oh my gosh, yeah. And with this kind of data in particular, it's just asking you to screw up. So think about any latent curve model where we have repeated measures that are indicators on the growth factors. Every repeated measure that you have, you have to be able to have a manifest variable for that. That has to have a mean and that has to have a variance to go into the SEM in the way that the latent curve model works. We have age 10, age 11, age 12, age 13, age 14, age 15. Bob's your uncle. We got everything we need. (laughs) Now think about an assessment at 1028 at 115 and at 430. Mm-hmm. And for Greg, you have 832, 1135, 106. You can and very often have a situation in which no two people even share yeah. the same assessment period. Not that you don't have enough to compute a mean and a variance on it, but only one person in your entire data file was assessed at 10.16 a.m. Yeah. So the SEM and the latent curve model tap out. You're done in these kinds of data. You can't even lie to yourself and tell you those were close, <laughs> close enough to be in the same interval as you start to think that these smaller and smaller intervals are where the action actually is. You just hit the nail on the head. Because I could take day assessments and night assessments and day assessments and night assessments, but then you start sh- shooting yourself in the foot because you had a reason to collect it at 1018 and 1142 and 155, whatever it might be. And now you're saying, oh, it's just, we're going to take the mean of everything that happened when the sun was up and the mean of everything that happened when the sun was down. And you're undermining the very nature of why you gathered the data in that way. Yep. It's those issues that we talked about, about dichotomization here. But in this case, you're just losing information, valuable information about time. Well, and the tail wags the dog now, don't it, Greg? (laughs) Because what you're doing is you're modifying your data to fit the modeling framework. Yeah. And that is bad, bad, bad. We ain't doing that. What we need to do is build a modeling framework that is consistent with the not only structure of the data, but with the motivating theoretical questions at hand. So before we start talking technical aspects... What is it about intensive longitudinal data that introduces issues that are not common in panel data? I think it's helpful to think about that. There are unique features that we have to deal with. Mm -hmm. If you're assessing anxiety at 1022 a.m. and again at 1143 a.m., is the anxiety at 1122 in some way more related to the anxiety at 1143 then at 10.22 and 3.15. Right. When you start getting these highly densely distributed observations in time, it introduces a thing called serial correlation. So could you clarify for us why it's not a thing in panel data and it is now all of a sudden a thing when we have the intensive data? Ripples in a pond. It's decay, not popper's corpse decay. <laughs> So let's say that you're looking at anxiety and substance use at age 15 and age 16. Mm -hmm. Anxiety at age 15 and anxiety at age 16 are going to have some correlation. Obviously, we can't fit a growth model if those don't covary. But we are going to model those covariances at the level of the latent growth process. Mm -hmm. So if we have age 10 to 15 and we're fitting a linear growth model, we have a random intercept, we have a random slope, we have a covariance between intercept and slope. All right, let's teleport back to the mind's eye of path tracing rules. Remember we were playing with guinea pigs at some point? (laughs) That's right, Sewell Wright, who had the fetish. Picture in your mind's eye a path diagram for a latent curve model. So you have five indicators that are repeated measures. You have two latent factors. How do you get from age 15 to age 16? So you start at age 15, you go down to your intercept factor up to age 16. That's part of it. Mm -hmm. And then depending on how you code time, you go down to your intercept, you go over the covariance, you go up to age 16. The model is building in the covariance between age 15 and 16. 
the residual of age 15 and 16 rarely is correlated in the LCM. That part that's left over of age 15 correlating with that part that's left over at age 16, not because we can't do it, but because often that residual covariance has decayed away. Over a year, any little bit of relation that's not related to the underlying growth process, those ripples in the ponds have just died away and it's gone flat again. But if you have 10.22 a.m. and 11.43 a.m., we can still have a random intercept on those, but there's going to be a little bit of serial correlation left over. Maybe you had a shot of coffee in the morning. Mm -hmm. Maybe you got in an argument with your boss and your anxiety went up and it's going to be higher at several times maybe before it returns back down to baseline, these intensive longitudinal designs introduce these serial correlations that we have to build into the model. Because if we don't, you know what starts tomorrow? North Carolina State Fair. You know, there are two reasons to go to the North Carolina State Fair, turkey legs and (laughs) whack-a-mole. That's all there is. If you have these serial correlations in your intensive design Mm -hmm. that want to be there and you don't let them, those are going to whack-a-mole down into other parts of the model and can seriously bias other aspects of your model estimation. So if I make the tie back to the latent curve model with structured residuals in a panel design, do you call it Lickham, sir? <laughs> Let's leave that alone. Okay. Rickle Pim is a special case of Lickham, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Where were we? Does it matter? Okay. Hang on. <laughs> In that model, you could connect the residuals of a variable to the residuals of that variable at a new time point. But isn't it the case that in the LCMSR, you often don't have the residual to residual time point connections within a variable. You more often have them across variables whose relation you're trying to study. Yeah, and it's a testable hypothesis. But all of those All of those are still based on this panel design. Yeah. If you're looking at a school-based end-of-grade testing, you want to follow it across elementary school, that kind of framework may be really well-suited for that. Mm -hmm. But if you're talking about daily anxiety and nightly alcohol use assessed morning and night over a 14-day period, the LCM taps out. So one complication then is the serial correlation that we have. Are there any others that you want to mention while we're here? If you're thinking about how does something unfold throughout the day or throughout the week, often you have to also start thinking about either cycles Mm. or transition points. Dan and I have some data we work with where there's 61 individuals measured with heart rate throughout the day up to 60 times. Hmm. You can cycle throughout the day, but you also go to sleep where there's a transition point. If you're studying alcohol use, in a university setting, you may need to consider weekday and weekends Hmm. as cyclical. And by the way, and this is official, weekend on college campuses starts on Thursday night. (laughs) We did some studies in our own lab. Not only did we have to put in a weekend effect, we had to look up online and put in impacts of home basketball games. But think about it. You have to do that stuff. If you are on the campus of the University of North Carolina and you are studying weekday, weekend drinking patterns, you darn well better put in home basketball games. And the fairy tale ride for the Tar Heels continues. And Coach K's legendary career has come to a close. Because there is a spike in drinking on Franklin Street. Dude, I'm doing my thing here. Is your alarm going off? It is. Hang on just a second. Our whole episode is about the importance of getting timing right. I have a Southwest Airlines flight 24 hours from now, and I have to make sure that I'm checked in. Otherwise, I'm going to get a crappy middle seat. You don't pay the 20 bucks to buy yourself to the front of the line? How freaking cheap are you? Okay, I want people to realize this is not a gag. (laughs) 
when I was midstream of doing my thing, he is right now trying to get, at best, you're going to get a B. You think so? Boarding. All right. I, <laughs> oh, I guarantee you because you've been talking to me for the last 30 seconds. All of A is gone already. Okay, here we go. I got B14. So, boom. Timing is everything. Okay. <laughs> I honestly just didn't expect that you would still be talking. Really? Don't mind me at all, Greg. <laughs> okay. I'm back. <laughs> So now, the latent curve model is tapped out. We can't do it. Right. If you have 20, 30, 40 measures, the SEM has said, thanks so much, I had a great time tonight, I'll be here all week, <laughs> and has walked off the stage. You know who's going to come on? And I have to admit, mm -hmm. they get marginalized a little bit from us SEM Kool-Aid drinkers. Right. Oh, we can do multiple indicator latent <laughs> factors. We can do reciprocal effects. We can do formal tests and mediation. Oh, look at us all buttered up in front of the mirror. I'm flexing my pecs. Look at my pecs. Look at them. You can't look away from my pecs. Oh, you have 10 repeated measures? Pardon me. <laughs> I have to go see a man about a horse. <laughs> Seriously, is the multi-level model gets dissed on a lot. Yeah. And you know what? The SEM was the warm-up act for the multi-level model who's going to come out with this little bottle of water and its stool. Thank you very much. Boy, what a crowd. What a crowd, huh? <laughs> People are throwing beer bottles at SEM to get off the stage? Is that what you're saying? Just like out of the Blues Brothers where they <laughs> perform behind the chicken wire. Because when uh -huh. the patrons liked it, they threw beer bottles. Yeah. And when they didn't like it, they threw beer bottles. <laughs> MLM is sitting back there smoking its cigarette in the back of the bar. And it's all by itself. And it's like, I knew you'd come back. <laughs> because what MLM does is it brings in the numerical measure of time as a predictor variable. Yeah. And you know what? 1018, 1145... It don't make no never mind. You and I had our episode where we talked about the relative benefits and detriments of MLM approach versus an SEM approach to growth. And I think we did a pretty even-handed treatment of that with the help of Dr. Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> we landed on the latent growth curve models as having so much versatility in things that the multi-level model couldn't do. But one of the big Achilles heels of the structural equation modeling approach is the rigidity when it comes to dealing with time. So I got to say that MLM has got some things going on here. It is looking pretty fine back there in the corner of the bar. Very briefly, MLM approaches any longitudinal design as an issue of dependent data. Mm -hmm. It is repeated measures nested within individuals. Now, we also know from prior episodes and a whole lot of great work that is out in the world that many, many growth modeling applications are isomorphic between MLM and SEM. To the 16th decimal. But... It starts to separate when you get into these intensive longitudinal designs. What the MLM allows for the intensive longitudinal data are a couple of big things right off the bat. One, you can, without hyperbole, have an observation at a time point that is not shared by anyone else in the sample. Yeah. You can have one person out of a thousand observations that were assessed at 9-11 a.m. and MLM don't care. Yeah. This is a huge advantage. And what it's doing is imagine that you have a predictor, some measure that is height. We never think about, oh my gosh, we need to have two people who share the same height to build a very... No, it's just, it's on a number line. Yep. And we have this continuous number line of time. And person one was assessed here, 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 and here. Person two, here, 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 and here. Don't make no, never mind. The second advantage is there are a whole host of level one error structures that we can build in those serial correlations. And they do different things. We can do an autoregressive structure, a moving average. We can do a banded toe plates. One of my favorite is spatial power. I use proc mixed in SAS for my own work, and they have something like 20 different structures of level one residuals. And what that is, is what we alluded to a few minutes ago, 
in the latent curve model, we assume that part of age 15 is uncorrelated with that part of age 16 mm -hmm. because any relation that was there has decayed away over that 12-month window. Well, here we're saying, holy cow, I got a boatload of these structures that I can build in. One, to give myself some theoretical insight into how my data unfold over time, but two, it protects against whack-a-mole. If there is this autoregressive lag one structure at my level one residual and it wants to be there, dollars to donuts that we got that AR1 in so that I can interpret my other covariance estimates with greater confidence that they're not biased because of whack-a-mole. Okay, I got a question for you. So you've got these error structures that are in the can, right? You can check this box and, ooh, I've got banded toplets. Mm -hmm. If you don't really have any theoretical questions around the error structure, but you just sort of view the error structure as a place where you want an insurance policy to help prevent whack-a-mole in the areas that you actually care about, what kind of error structure do you gravitate toward just to make you sleep better at night? I hang them all and let God sort them out. <laughs> you are spot on. Not often is there a theoretically motivated question that would distinguish an AR1 from a banded toplets. Mm -hmm. You estimate 10 different structures and pick the one with the lowest Bayesian information criteria. Mm -hmm. You let the data speak to you. It's not a theoretical inference. Don't yell at me for being the reason for the replication crisis. <laughs> what we're trying to do is to optimally represent this complex level one error structure so that then we can go on about our business. Yeah, and our business is elsewhere. And our business is elsewhere. All right, so assuming that you've wrestled with your error structure demons, you've got something at least in place that's going to keep you out of trouble as far as whack-a-mole goes. Tell us about some of the kinds of cool things that you can do where the action is in your model. Well, you know what's neat? What you would often do in models like these, even with panel data. Mm -hmm. Are there time trends? Does anxiety increase throughout the day and then go down? And then does it increase throughout the day and go down? Does that differ between individuals? Do you have time-varying predictors? This is a big thing in ILD. Mm -hmm. Does my anxiety during the day predict my alcohol use that night? Mm -hmm. And so if I'm more anxious than I usually am, do I drink more than I usually do? Those are those kind of dynamic process questions that we want to ask. And so a lot of it is doing what we wanted to do in the first place, but being able to do it properly. Do we have a predictor of an outcome that we have earlier in the day predicting later in the day or at an hour increment or whatever, right? There are no rules on how to use these. You might have an intensive longitudinal design where you take weekly measures for 50 weeks. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter that it's minutes or hours. It's the density of the observations. I would say it's in a way a little anticlimactic. It allows us to look at lead lag relations in the way that we really want, but doing it in a way that's proper in terms of the characteristics of our observed data. And we get cool things like splines, right? We can have knots where there are interesting developmental junctures that things might occur. We have all kinds of flexibilities that are very, very interesting to us. And in many cases, we can get at the individual differences in those kinds of things where there are just fascinating questions here. And we do that with the heart rate data. Uh -huh. We have a linear spline where we fit an individual trajectory to the heart rate data throughout the day. And then we have a knot of when the person goes to sleep ah. and then fit a second spline of their heart rate when they're asleep. And the super cool thing is when you go to sleep can vary over individual. Right. And so you can literally start doing things like cosines. We've established all of us owe our high school math teachers apology. Huge apology. Right. Yeah. <laughs> when am I ever going to have to figure the area under a curve between two fixed <laughs> points. This is so stupid. Oh, yeah, that's hypothesis testing. And another one is, when am I ever going to use a cosine function? Well, instead of fixed transition points, these smooth cycles that go up and down and up and down, you can build those in. It's fascinating. So one of the things that you and I talked about in a previous episode, our Lego episode, right, where we talked about reparameterization, one of the key messages was trying to get as much fidelity between the model and your research question. And the things that you're describing, it's not just like, woohoo, 
we can put in a cosine. That's so awesome. It's that you think that there's a particular process that subscribes to that cycle, or you think that there's a particular process that's reasonably well characterized by two lines that meet at a particular point. I am just, as you know, a huge fan of using something that has the flexibility to try to build what you need for what it is you're studying. And this does, I have to say, have an awful lot of that. It's the laser cannon on the flower shop. (laughs) Annie's flower shop. (laughs) There are a couple of pretty significant limitations to this approach. Not limitations in what we're able to do, because everything that we've talked about, it does it really, really well. It's a limitation in what we're not able to do. Imagine that we have anxiety during the day and alcohol use that evening, and we follow that for 14 days. Mm-hmm. That would be a very reasonable application for this. All right, well, let's think about some of the limitations that the MLM naturally has. First, in a single model, we're only able to look at one direction of that effect. Yeah, We can look at anxiety to alcohol use, but we cannot simultaneously look at alcohol use back to anxiety. So drinking might make me more or less anxious, right? That's right. Yeah. So I did a project a number of years ago with a wonderful guy named Tom Rodebaugh. Mm-hmm. And his dissertation, he did an early days diary, like paper, pencil. Mm. He was really interested in panic attacks and what were risk factors for that. And in the morning, he would have the individual report, how fearful are you that you will experience a panic attack during the day? And then that night, he assessed how many panic attacks did you have during the day? Hmm. He was interested in, was your fearfulness in the morning associated with experiencing more panic attacks during the day? Mm -hmm. But did your experience of panic during the day predict your fearfulness the next morning? Hmm. So there are some real really important questions that we have about reciprocal relations. And the MLM approach really just isn't suited for that. That's exactly right. Yeah. Now, the LCM is exceptionally well-suited for that. Mm-hmm. Whether it be the random intercept cross-leg panel model or the LCMSR, however you approach it, it's really well-suited to saying earlier panic predicts later fear, earlier fear predicts later panic. There's just that little problem that we can't use that model with intensive longitudinal data. Right. So we do not have reciprocal relations within the MLM. The other drunken punch to the face <laughs> I know what's coming. Well, then you tell me. There's this thing that you said back when the earth was cooling, when we started uh, this podcast, you said something early and often, and that was, if you blow measurement, everything else is a problem. What I'm not seeing in this model is the thing that you and I tout all the time as being so crazy important, and that is the ability to accommodate potential measurement error here. I mean, I can say I have outstanding measures of everything that I have in my model, and I might be able to work in the background with some very fancy, very modern ways of trying to get the best possible scores that technology and money can buy, but I can't actually model the latent variable directly in this system. And as Bauer said in the MNLFA episode, and I can make it worse yet, Mm -hmm. which is we're pushing to cell phones Do you feel anxious? Yes, no. Do you feel fearful? Yes, no. Do you feel uncomfortable? Yes, no. We got to go back to first principles. Smitty Stevens, (laughs) the principled assignment of numbers to observations, there are a lot of dissertations out there to be done to look at not only measurement error in these models, Mm -hmm. but the other characteristics. Are these continuous? Are these normal? Are these ordinal? Are these liquored? Are these counts? a binary, which means we need to be thinking about these as Poissons or negative binomials. Mm -hmm. The MLM, as we've waxed poetic up to this point, assumes the dependent variable is continuous, normal, and error-free. Yeah. So funny story, (laughs) none of those hold. (laughs) Just like when we talked about the pluses and minuses with regard to growth modeling, we're in this situation here where we have pluses and minuses with regard to the intensive longitudinal data. We've talked about all the wonders of an MLM approach, but can we buy something back that's more in the SEM family? We can, but we've never met him before. So it turns out SEM has an older brother. Mm -hmm. He's going to come out for open mic night. Mm -hmm. Now, we came out because we've seen SEM before, and he's hilarious. He's funny as heck. 
you know, we have a lot of expressions in the English language, and we never seem to examine them very closely. Like, legally drunk. Leave the guy alone, he's legally drunk! <laughs> and we saw MLM before, and oh man. Kills every time. Who's this Decem guy? Nobody's ever heard of him. Hmm. He's gonna come out now. And what's the deal with lampshades? I mean, if it's a lamp, why do you want shade? This is dynamic structural equation models. This is the brainchild of a lot of very smart people. Tiamir Asparov, Ellen Hamacher, Bengt Mutane. Others have contributed to this. Mm -hmm. Can we take some of the basic principles of the structural equation model? The two big ones are, yeah, you want to come back the other way with a reciprocal effect? Sure. Mm -hmm. Doesn't bother me. You can go any way you want. And second, you want a multiple indicator latent vector? Yeah, I can do that. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> but be careful in there. We have squared the circle, which is remember maximum likelihood who had baby oiled himself up and was flexing in front of the mirror. Maximum likelihood heard the police sirens outside and they're like, I'm out of here. And maximum likelihood is gone. Right? Out the window and down the alleyway as the cops pull up. And what I mean is, is DSEM, which we are not going to talk about here because it's an entire episode in and of itself. DSEM, I think, conceptually brings an LCMSR-like approach within the intensive longitudinal design. Mm -hmm. You can have reciprocal relations. You can have multiple indicator latent factors. You can do SEM-like things that we want to do, but we can do them within the ILD kind of high-density framework. But what we do is ML broke out the window and ran away when he heard the sirens. It's a whole new ball game in estimation. There are a lot of unresolved issues. We have to approach it from a Bayesian perspective. Hmm. I have no concerns about that. This is just brand new and we've got a lot to learn. Well, then I wouldn't leave it up to us to explain it. I wouldn't leave anything up to us. So maybe we should get someone in the future who actually knows a little bit about DSEM to help us out with that one. So let's seal that jar of pickles and put it on a back shelf for winter. What? Okay, at this point, I'm just making shit up. I don't even know what that means. Okay. Let's save DSEM for a future conversation and maybe loop in some real talent to help us talk about that. Maybe we better go take a nap on the Davenport. Don't even try. No? <laughs> Come on! You're from Seattle. Maybe we should go buy a cup of coffee and go umbrella shopping. <laughs> I don't know. Isn't that something? Those are my say? people. Those, <laughs> respect my people. <laughs> All right, everybody. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you distract yourself from the midterm elections. And please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. And check out our webpage at QuantitudePod.org for past episodes, playlists, show notes, transcripts, and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get Quantitude-themed merch to fulfill your obligatory upcoming Secret Santa assignment at RedBubble.com where all proceeds go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, the podcast equivalent to Southwest Boarding Number C-58. Quantitude has been brought to you by Elon Musk, whose career trajectory has gone from revolutionizing electric vehicles to perfecting human spaceflight to becoming obsessed with blue check marks, and will soon complete its arc when he swings by Greg's house in a few days to help out with the podcast. By the proper use of the Oxford comma, proud to be the number one source of marital conflict among academic couples since 1905, and by in-person and Zoom hybrid job talks, just when you thought that a pandemic job talk couldn't possibly get any more stressful, now it does. This is most definitely not NPR. <laughs> <laughs>